Yeah, I kept thinking I would leave. But I came back. New York pulled me. I don't, you know, it's, it's an addictive place. And I think that I just had a feeling I had something to do here. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. How are you? How you doing? What's going on? Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that voice you heard up front is Storyteller Deluxe. That's that little stuffy. A wonderful storyteller, Robin Beatty. And we, uh, we had a great conversation with her at Beatty House for those in New York City storytelling scene. One of the jewels has been story concerts at the house of Robin Beatty, and she bakes cookies, and she's a, a great vibe, and, and hopefully that'll return now with, with things opening up. And be- anyway, blah, blah, blah. You'll hear the conversation I had with Robin soon. For those who are following things No Name, No Name has uh, started uh, returning to live shows. And we had one of our super story party editions this past week. It was wonderful. We had amazing folks there. Cambry Cruz came through, Leanne Lord. It was a great time. It looks like we will be returning to Word Up Bookshop for Super Story Party shows with Michelle Carlo as my co-host on first Tuesdays of the month starting in May. But, uh, you know, check the Word Up Bookshop, check in with me on social media, whatever. We'll put the word out when it's official. But it's looking like that's going to happen. Also, I should give a plug to uh, a show we're going to do at QED in Astoria, the club owned by Cambry Cruise, actually. And that will be happening on Saturday, May 27th, says the blind guy who can't consult his calendar. But as far as I know, that is the date it should be up on their website soon if it's not already there. And you know what? I don't have a lot I need to get off my chest at this point. So, you know, I I can spare you fast-forwarding through everything to get to the good stuff, which is the conversation with Robin. So we'll get to that in just a second after this word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right. The historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast. This is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think, I'd rather not have the breakfast? Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious... Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They're totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. 
www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. I started out as an actress earlier and then a director, and then I started doing folk and fairy tales. That was my bread and butter for years, 20-some years. I have to remember, folk and fairy tales were not originally for kids. Yeah. They were, I mean, I'm thinking, I named my cat uh, Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, after uh, the great goddess, Queen of Heaven and Earth. But no, I mean, if you think about it, it was from... A myth, the mythology of Gilgamesh, which was, which is, by the way, the earliest story found that was written in what, Sumerian characters. What are we looking at time-wise? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, when, when a, how about a you? long time ago? <laughs> oh, what? Well, <laughs> a you know, long it, time ago. Don't get, don't get too technical on me. I won't be able to follow. Well, I would say pre-Judeo, Judeo. Before oh, so the beginning of Israel or Judeas or the Israelites or the Hebrew people, it was before that. I mean, it was actually, from what I understand, it was the first. And somebody is going to call you and say she's lying. She mm-hmm. doesn't know her facts. But I think it was the first written fake language story. Found. Fake story. Fake story. Honey, it is a fake story. Oh well, yeah, actually. <laughs> but it's but it's a great story, and it's. Um, and it was meant for people to really, you know, to they told some mythology. Mm-hmm. And they were telling also what was happening. Am I, from what I've been able to read into it and some scholarly friends who are way more knowledgeable than me, it was the beginning of the switchover between matriarchy and patriarchy. Oh, interesting. So because this guy, you know, defeats a goddess. And, you know, she was the great mother goddess. So, you you don't, that was like when women still were goddesses and no one knew where kids came from. We're talking uh, from Beatty House in Brooklyn. Where do you originally hail from? You're you're not a a native Brooklyn person? No, no. My father was born here. Uh, And then my parents, you know, both grew up on the Lower East Side. Uh, The Jersey Shore. Oh, okay. Right outside Asbury Park. I was a boardwalk girl. I was a beach chick. I wanted to be a surfer girl, but there was no way I was going to get up on a surfboard. (laughs) Okay. Never never even gave it a shot? Um, No, but I like to go watch the boys. (laughs) That's what surfer girls did. We just watched. This was before, you know. As as long as you had. Women's liberation, which is really a long time ago. I remember when I was in college, I was... At this very liberal, way liberal school, Antioch College in Ohio. Very free form. Oh, yeah, it was very liberal and everything started there kind of thing, Mm. you know. And that was one of the first places that you had to give consent to every stage of sex. This was like the drug and... um, sex and rock and roll capital of the Midwest. Oh, okay. At least we thought we were. I mean, a lot of drugs were came in and out. I mean, this was, okay, I'll tell you my, you'll know my age, 1969, 1970. Well, this is right around the time Kent State, right? Yeah. So, which was, you know, just not very far from there. That, I would, so that's what I was going to ask. The yeah. Vietnam War and all of that. And 
I, I just remember I was not, even though my siblings had gone, two siblings had gone, a bunch of cousins. Mm-hmm. I was not fully prepared for what Antioch was, uh, but it was like a place where boys and girls lived in the same dorm and there was nobody, you know, holding you accountable to, you know, when you showed up. Whole drug dorms would trip. I remember being asked if I wanted to and I hadn't tripped, which was a tremendously humiliating thing mm-hmm. to not have done oh, all right, the right. drugs everyone else did. Um what kind of a surfer chick were you? Uh, I was just the one. Well, this is this is a, that's when I was younger. The surfer trick, <laughs> and then right. I moved, and that was when I was wearing clothes like surfer chicks were. At this point, you're hippies, and um, you're wearing beat up clothes. I mean, right. you switch styles very quickly when you're a young person. <laughs> indeed, so indeed. that was like you know about four years between that surfer girl. I loved that album or that song. <laughs> Little surfer, little one, blah, blah. But the thing that was interesting is that some boy walked up to me and he looked at me. I was wearing like this really nice striped shirt. And, you know, and it was, I want to say it was poplin or something. And it had, or but it was crisp, Mm -hmm. percale. And it had, you know, it had cuffs. and, And I was wearing just a tie, which was like a faux tie, guy mm. walks up to me and goes, hey, so are you in women's lib? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, what's women's lib? I had no idea. That was the first I ever heard of it. Mm. I, so, I take it he wasn't a proponent of that. I have no idea. That could have been a pickup line for all I know. <laughs> Antioch, you were supposed to be a proponent of everything. Right, right. So, oh, wow. Well, did you like Antioch? I was there for a year and a half. Yeah, and then, did you like it? <laughs> <laughs> I liked it, but I wanted to act, and I dropped out. Mm-hmm. So I could. I joined a street theater company. Had you had you ever acted prior to then? Oh yeah, like in yeah, school yeah. Plays and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it like something you wanted to do from. from That's what age? I thought I was going to be. It was an mm-hmm. actress, and that lasted until I went to acting school, and I said, I don't want to do this. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it really was interesting. I. And where, where did you go to? NYU. To oh, the, wow. Okay. So how do you, you get to, to NYU? Oh, that's such a, you really want, the long story is. Sure, go for I it. I dropped out and I, out of Antioch, which mm-hmm. which makes me a pure Antiochian. You know, people who, at Antioch, you can graduate or you can drop out. It's equal. Okay. You know, lots and lots of people. I think that there was at least a third of the people Dropped out for something else. Okay. So I dropped out to join a street theater uh, company, Mm -hmm. 1971. And um, so we did all that political theater. Mm. And eventually I just decided that- And where were you you doing the street theater? Chicago. All right. So so we go from Asbury Park to Ohio- To the cornfields of Ohio. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which was about as rural as I'd never been. Uh, and then I'm in the streets of Chicago. And it, was it the the company that took you there, or did you go there looking for the company? Well, I had been there doing something else, and then I when I came, I liked Chicago, and I was in the green room in my um, the theater department, and there was a sign up there, a little I can still see it was like a I would say it's a post-it, but they didn't have post-its back then. It said. <laughs> 
Are you interested in doing theater that means something? (laughs) Do you want to commit yourself to making a change, to bringing about the revolution? Then call me (laughs) and join blah, 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 blah in Chicago. Uh, So I called her. And I can't remember if I went to visit. Honestly, I don't remember. mm -hmm. I hope I did. But I don't think so. Um, And I showed up. They picked me up in... I was picked up in a car mm-hmm. that had no bottom to it. Uh, <laughs> oh, you except got a fr- you had a like stone car. Yeah, it was like really weird. <laughs> it was like a clown car, but it was like it had enough for the this, but you know, there was no floor and uh, it was freezing Chicago weather. Uh, so it was like, you know, had 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 a snowstorm. It was like below it was like in the 20s. It was so cold. And then when I get there, the place I'm supposed to say we we lived in a couple of collective living mm. uh, situations, and two of the three people that I was there going to be living with said, hey, so we just dropped acid. You want to join us? And that was the end of my drugs <laughs> because I tried. I kept trying to get high, but I couldn't do it. I was so paranoid when they said that because all of a sudden I felt like I was in a weird Fellini film Mm -hmm. and I had been kidnapped by circus clowns who were much more evil than they seemed and they were going to take me and turn me into, I don't know. You know, drugs make you paranoid. So I was already paranoid. Understood. Understood. Now, Ned, you you said you had been asked about that while you were at Antioch, but had you, had you actually tried at that point, drugs. Yeah. Oh, you had to. It was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was so, part of the. So this it was, was part of the culture. First, no, this was no, not your no. first time round. It oh, was no. just your last. I mean, it was my last time. I mean, I, my last time was before I got there. Okay. Um, I mean, I did. You know, for a while I smoked marijuana and hash, but not much longer. Mm-hmm. There was something. It was like. Sometimes I've described it as you cut your connection with your old world, mm-hmm. and. You throw yourself into this new world that's about art and politics, mm-hmm. radical left wing. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, people there were. I mean, I, you know, I didn't really know what my politics were. Mm-hmm. Then I knew what I thought was wrong, right? And I knew that theater could make a difference. Mm. And I, I didn't know much more and. Street theater's fun. You get up, you make up skits, and you perform in the streets, and you wear outrageous costumes, and you get away before the cops come. You know, it's that kind of thing. We went to the last anti-war demonstration in Washington, at least anti-this war, that Mm -hmm. war demonstration, where everybody got arrested three times. Was that your first time getting arrested? It was my first time. I mean, we were, I was arrested, actually, I was arrested three times. Mm-hmm. Some of my friends were only arrested twice. All very confusing. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of in there, and sometimes I think, what was I doing? I wanted to be normal, and there was nothing I was doing. <laughs> However, yeah. It, yeah. it was really, I made really good friends, mm-hmm. and I'm still friends with not many, mm-hmm. maybe about five. Well, five people is a lot of people to be still friends with, and when we all get together, I mean, sometimes when I've gone back to Chicago, when my best friend there became a storyteller also. We get together and the other friends come. It's very weird. 
it's I mean, it's seriously weird. And if I, there's an open people. mic, they get up and tell stories. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Uh-huh. But the way I got to New York was I decided I really wanted to learn acting and then I wasn't going to learn it in this group. And you you were there for what, about five years? I was there for five years. Yeah, okay. And it was quite hard to leave. Those were my friends. Mm-hmm. And that was the first, that was the tightest community mm-hmm. I had ever had up till then. It was tighter than my family. We were there for a lot of reasons. And in many ways, we were experimenting. We were learning about ourselves sexually. And, you know, I mean, I pretty much weaned myself I, off drugs. And then I started drinking. So that was my my big thing, which made me very unpopular among young people. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to drink. You're supposed to only do drugs. Ah, That was a big deal. Right, right. Well, it, it, now, and then it, some people crossed over and did both. Well, you know, diversify. There were things that were important back then are really strange. So I applied to acting schools and I got into two that were in New York. Your blood family, what do they think about all your travels at this point? They're pretty odd themselves. So I don't think they think anything. Mm. My brother lives in Berlin. He went to Antioch and he graduated and he got a Fulbright to go to Yugoslavia. My... Younger sister is a puppet maker and a puppeteer, and she's traveled with her stuff. My older sister's a therapist, and oh, she wow. lives here. So, no, we're a pretty odd group. What I did is not unlike what anyone else did. My sister was involved in the civil rights movement from an early age, and so was my mother. My mother once let me know that I was doing what she wished she had done, because mm. back in the 30s, she did theater. So it was like, I was like, I kept feeling I was fulfilling some of her dreams, which was a little weird, but true. She supported me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's my father nice. was completely confused, but <laughs> what is she doing? She's making money at what? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, my wait, God. you made money? I, we need to be better friends. Uh, you figured out something I haven't. <laughs> well, that's a lot where folk, you know, the teaching. Folk, I do a lot mm. of teaching, mm. and I teach for organizations. I don't, I have never had the guts to go out on my own. Mm. You know, just, just I have friends who just, I'm going to teach a class. But I always teach a class. I, I'll say I'm teaching, but I do it through, you know, organizations. And at first it was kids, and then all the performing for children. Mm-hmm. You know, folk tales, folklore. It's really fun. I, I haven't done it for a long time, and I've now been asked to do it again, which shocks me no end. <laughs> Why does it shock you? Because I thought I had put it behind me. <laughs> I'm never going to work for, do anything for children again. <laughs> but um, I do. You have things to teach them. Well, I don't teach. I won't teach anymore. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, screw the kids then. Yeah, but I'm but for performing, <laughs> performing for them is really interesting, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm very lucky. Whenever I need something, a door opens. Literally, I had no plans on teaching kids. Mm-hmm. I no desire. Right. I had had two youth theaters already in New York, one in New York and one in Chicago at the same time, and I really, <laughs> yeah, one was a summer one, and one was, you know, the rest of the year. 
And well, you know what? Hey, hey, forgive me for interrupting, but I kind of want to go back to, to to where you landed it. You ultimately selected NYU. You had two offers, and and you went to NYU, right? Mm-hmm. So what was that like? Intense. It was the graduate program, even mm-hmm. though I had didn't even have a bachelor's. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> like, so what you, you? I got a bachelor's, but it was the same program people get masters from. So mm-hmm. it was people who are just about my age. Mm-hmm. For the most part, um, what was it like? It was rough. It was hard. Did I really, you feel like you were learning stuff there. Sometimes it was confusing. It was, you know, one thing I've learned as I've gotten older. I keep, I like taking classes mm-hmm. as well as teaching them, and you know, but specifics, and you learn with certain kinds of teachers, and some you don't, and so there weren't a whole lot of teachers at NYU that I learned with, which isn't their fault. Right. And in some ways, it's not my fault. You know, they just didn't have an approach that made sense to me. I mean, I had a hard time. I was not, I am not emotionally set up for acting. You have to have a really strong persona that you mm-hmm. can't I don't take rejection well so that was mm. oh I, yeah acting the hard way to go if that's the case you know, yeah. but I love the work mm-hmm. and but I kept finding that there were ways around it so it was okay I mean I had some, I met some really great people mm-hmm. none of whom I'm in you know in contact with which I right. think it was very competitive place and Indeed. again I'm not good with that so um, yeah you know, unless I'm sticking the knife in, you know. <laughs> and it, it wasn't, like, really awful. I mean, people people did what they did. You know, it's it's kind of a, you got to do what you got to do to take care of yourself. It's a, yeah. it's a very tender work. It was just not taught in a way I could pull out. I kind of got into it too much. I, I got you. And, I, you know, that, I crossed that's... over a lot. Understood. And, and, and I, I don't know if, if this was your experience, but in, in reflecting back on the time when I was a young acting student, I mm. was thinking, you know, you have people who are at a moment in their lives where they're like, their whole sense of self is being redefined and explored and all of that. And you're exploring all these different things in acting class and you, just can, you can walk out of there in an emotional mess because of all the things you're sorting through both in class and in real life, you know. And but, uh, it can but, get jumbled up sometimes, you know. But I still think of the things I learned. And as a storyteller, it has helped me. All of a sudden in my one-woman show, which I don't know if you've seen or not. Um, I know of it. I have not seen it. You're talking about Nancy Drewinsky? Nancy Drewinsky. I mean, I, I, I realized in that that I had to be vulnerable, something I had never wanted to be. <laughs> Ever. See, that surprises me because, in, in you know, in your appearances and our, our shows through the years and, and other things that I've seen you do, you always have seemed to me like a, a person who was very sharing of, of stuff that was very personal to you. And maybe that's just the times I caught you or whatever, but that's, that's how I've always viewed you. The first story I did was a rape story. That was the first one where I realized I had to... Uh, I couldn't just make it a joke, yeah. which I wanted to. Mm. I mean, not that a joke. I wanted to be funny and funny until it was hor- horrific. And mm. I realized I had to go through a process to get through that because it was opening up wounds that 
Yeah. I didn't even know I had, to be honest with you. Yeah. I and knew it, you know. If I'm not mistaken, it, well, there's two things. First of all, I know I saw you do stories at some place, I believe at our place as well, prior to that time. But I remember that night very vividly because you, if I'm not mistaken, did not show up that night intending to do that story, or at least not that way. Hmm. And you, you know, because I remember you, you spoke to me and Michelle afterwards and, you know, or sent us messages or whatever. And we're talking about, you know, having just kind of followed that impulse on the night. It was very powerful, I thought. I remembered thinking, you know, how how much I admired you for making that choice to to go with it. And I also mm. made made it feel like sharing that much of yourself, it just kind of made it a much more intimate and powerful evening for those of us who were there, I thought. Thank you. What I've learned about personal storytelling, actually, I don't really know. I, I feel like I'm still formulating it. I'm... Mm. I always think of myself as a slow learner, which is fine. <laughs> I can relate. You know, I, it's like, you know, some people go whoosh, like an arrow, but I'm like a wave that takes its time and comes up the shore and goes back and then comes far, but it's also wide and I have to cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. And that's who I am. And, and so when I get there, I am secure. Mm-hmm. And... Personal stories, I just didn't know for the long, I just blabbed them out. And I'm I'm trying to think of how I learned what to do. Well, I teach, that has helped me. I love teaching. My theory is, is that you teach what you need to know. (laughs) I get that. My very first theater company was with middle school kids and uh, like early teens. When when did you first... Uh, teach? Were were you out of NYU by that point? I first taught when I was still in Chicago okay. with my friends. I And it was sort of, I didn't know what I was doing, but our theater company was asked to provide theater classes to a group of young men and women who had left the world of gangs and was in this special school, like a mm. charter school. So we taught there. Right. And... Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I just followed my friend Margaret's Margaret's lead. And then I started teaching. That, like, almost it was my first job, you know, it, during the summer. Yeah. was I was teaching in an after school, and instead of waitressing, money was bad. Not bad, it wasn't good, but, you know, little by little I learned how you teach. But when I started really teaching, I started with very – I was working with a Mommy and Me program. Mm-hmm. So those are babies. And at the same time, I was teaching slightly older kids, yeah. first, second, and third grade, and fourth maybe. So there I am, you know, starting at early childhood, preschool and then early childhood. So it was like I got to go through my own process. And I learned about theater. And then I started to look, when I started to teach storytelling, I realized I don't want to teach theater anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm a storyteller. Forget about and when, it. And uh, where are you in your journey? Uh, not to sound too too fluffy about it, but yeah. you know, it, it, where where along the way were you when you had that revelation? That was when I first started teaching. I think. Uh-huh. No, that's not true completely. Um, pretty long time ago, though. Pretty early on, I made a dis- decision. I was going to cut 
from when I found storytelling, that was what I was going to do. There were so many things in its favor. I made my own work. Mm-hmm. I could charge whatever I wanted or give it for free. No one else was on stage with me, so I didn't have to satisfy theirs or a director's desires. I mean, and that was where I started. And mm-hmm. I added guitar and I added other musicians and, you know, and it all built up from there. But and it just became more exciting. So mm-hmm. that was early. I realized I didn't want to be an actress looking back when I didn't want to go to auditions. Uh, they uh, were like, why? And did you finish at NYU? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you did get the degree. I got a degree, thank God. <laughs> I no, I mean, I can't believe I, I was going to go to another school that didn't give a degree mm-hmm. um, just because I thought it was an equally or better place. Right. And um, the neighborhood playhouse. Every now and then someone asked me, do you want to act in this? And who is some one woman I love dearly, who guy's name, I, Lauren, who was part of that. Lauren and somebody else. Anyway, this group of women who did this witchy kind of thing. Mm. Um, not that they were witchy, but they set themselves up like glitter witches. Um, you'd know who they were if I remembered their names. <laughs> um, but I don't want to act. I don't want to be, I don't want to respond to any but another actor. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do the things you need to do. Um, I really love responding to text. You know, and that to me is the most important thing. Acting, I realized, felt very make-believe. Storytelling doesn't. That's what I think I like, too. You know? So when, when you first start uh, exploring the world of storytelling, what, what was exciting you? What, what types of stories were you drawn to? Um, I was drawn to stories that were not too long, so they wouldn't be hard to memorize. Uh, not that I, I didn't memorize them word for word. And, um, you know, I'm a stepmother, so I never pick stepmother stories unless I can turn it out, turn it around in some way. I like stories where you have to overcome something and you see that happen, where it's not magical. Mm-hmm. I mean, magic is good, but it's a tool. It's not an answer. How's mm-hmm. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I get that. It's that, you know, so that it's... It, if I'm understanding correctly, that you're you're saying like it seems like something that that is real, not something that could never actually happen, kind of a thing. No, I don't mind that that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, I love fantasy. I'm a big sci-fi freak, mm-hmm. um, sci-fi fantasy. But I, I like I like stories where there's an obstacle to be overcome, and it's right. overcome. I like there to be a female, you know, protagonist. I am not excited about King. We're just talking about fairy tales and folk tales, right? Mm-hmm. Or are we talking about personal stories? Oh, no, well, I was talk, I, starting with the fairy tales, uh, folk tales, because that's where you began yeah. uh, with storytelling. I, I don't like the idea. I'm, I am very ultra-democratic. I don't like stories with kings or queens very mm-hmm. much, um, except I have a couple I just love because they're so much fun to tell. But, <laughs> but I really try to denigrate the office of king, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. I think that the more we tell those kinds of stories, the more we're making it natural for children to hear stories about people who are more powerful, more beautiful, and and I just don't think it's useful in our society today, maybe mm-hmm. ever. 
there are people who are still looking to have that sort of thing in place. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and help like, us. And in some ways, you know, you hear enough fairy tales, you believe, it's like the Windsors. It's like, please get rid of those yo-yos. Make them get a job for real and <laughs> right. distribute the wealth. Yeah, for real. But, you know, who am I? So so you're embracing the, the folk tales and you're seeking out the sorts of tales that you want to tell. And your your first audiences are the mommy and me class and the uh, uh, young and then it was like that yeah and i mean and then yeah i was in schools libraries i mean that's been that for for years i mean i i stopped doing mommy and me a long time right right but i mean that's where you that's oh that was the best job yeah i mean i learned so much about children in a way you know because i studied it Mm -hmm. you know when i get anything i Get a lot. I go to the library and get twenty books out. So I um, learned about child development and muscles and brain stuff and you know brain science and anatomy and how you move and what games. I mean, it was it's really fun. It's always like you're just expanding. And when I finally decided I wanted, I'm trying to think of. I started to get confused about what stories I can tell because. In the world of folk and fairy tales, and if anyone's hearing me this and thinks I'm wrong, you can tell me. <laughs> Email me, because I probably am wrong. But, you know, there is an idea that you don't tell the stories of the colonized. I mean, I'm not a colonizer unless you talk about Palestinian stuff, me as a Jew, having to deal with that. But, you know, you're really, you don't tell a lot of Native American stories. And mm-hmm. you want to be always respectful of, so people aren't feeling that their their culture is being ripped appropriated. off. Yeah, being yeah, appropriated. Yeah. Which is really easy to do. I have, Even with the best of intentions sometimes. And know? I have really bad intentions. But some of my favorite <laughs> stories are Native American stories. I'm so pissed I can't tell them the way I want to tell them, when I want to tell them. So, But... I mean, I'm not fully pissed. I, I, you know, when I hear somebody tell a bad Jewish story, mm-hmm. I want to strangle them. <laughs> you know, bad Jewish accent, please. Ah, right, right, right. So, I mean, I just have, I always just take that back and I remember how I feel. And I'm not even super Jew mm-hmm. or anything. That'd but, be a great superhero though, wouldn't it? What, super it's Jew? Super Jew. <laughs> I think there is one. <laughs> That didn't surprise me. Actually. You know, you think a Jewish person who create all the all those superheroes were most of them were created by Jews I, this anyway. Is true, yeah. So yeah, we just don't call them super Jew. We call them Superman. Right, exactly. Super Jew. They, they never <laughs> told. They never told us Superman is Jewish. Oh. <laughs> he was circumcised. Yeah, back on the planet of whatever it was. So uh, you stayed in the city at that point after NYU, yeah. Yeah, I kept thinking I would leave and I would go for like half a year or a quarter of a year. But I came back. I'm New York pulled me. I don't, you know, it's it's an addictive place. <laughs> and and I think that I just had a feeling I had something to do here. And you know, I think a lot of it was digging up some of this personal history stuff. You know, for a while all the personal stories are were about things I did when I was younger, strikes and I did a rent, led a rent strike. I, you know, I filed with the National Labor Relations Board 
in, you know, got thousands, and I was threatened daily by my old bosses. I just had a lot of those kinds of stories Mm -hmm. that I would tell. And, you know, and I have a series of stories that I think of as my witchy stories about, you know, strange things that happen. Uh, My, My girlfriend who told me she was a witch and, you know, these odd adventures we had. And so I, I have a series of those, but I've only started telling what I think of as normal stories, like how my uncle took me to New York to see plays and how that changed my life, or how my aunt got me a confirmation dress when my mother disapproved. And, you know, the little things, that pe- little family things. Usually it's about adventures, and this was about family. Well, it, it, since you, you're talking about those kinds of stories, how did you... Uh... At what point and how did you make the transition from uh, folk tales to more personal stories? I think I felt stuck. I didn't want to step on any toes. Mm-hmm. And I also. And how long had you been doing the, the folk tales thing at that 20 point? 20 some years. Probably. Oh, okay. So you, you're I've deep. been doing it. You're deep in, yeah. And I mean, you know, for a long time, I, I, I'm, not, I'm a person who doesn't want to see anyone else do it. I don't want to compare and despair. And I, and I wanted. I wanted my style to be authentic. And I am. I look at somebody and I start to copy them and think they're better than me. So I just had to stay away. So that's what I did with the folk and fairy tales. It's very unusual. Mostly people go and see people and they go and study. And and I I don't do, well, I do study with people, but... um, I think I just felt stuck. You know, when I tell a folk tale, I want to, to a certain extent, divorce it from its culture. I want to find the story. Mm-hmm. And it's so often disrespectful. Like, I don't mind doing that with European stories. Um, I can't do it with Jewish stories because I'm Jewish and my culture and, and my disrespect is very Jewish, you know, it's like, it's all, it comes along with a certain strain of Jewish humor and Jewish insanity and, you know, Lenny Bruce-ish stuff. So that stuff was okay. But, you know, the the most amazing Native American stories I felt, I felt like I didn't want to insult anybody. And I was bummed because they were such great stories, mm-hmm. like the vampire skeleton, you know, it's like, Come on, that, the 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 man with no head, the rock giants. It's like, please, no, I want to tell them and make them wilder. <laughs> so you're feeling a little bit fenced in by what you felt comfortable with, with, with doing. Sharing. And I would have felt comfortable, but I knew someday someone would catch me. <laughs> okay, okay. And I even applied for an award that I got. Mm-hmm. with one of those stories, and I was sure everybody would hate it. Mm. And they didn't. They gave me the award. Well, you know, there might be something to the fact that it mattered so much to you to be respectful, and, and that may have influenced how you presented the story, and, and it consciously or unconsciously, it might have impacted how the people re- received it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. You know, but you were uncomfortable treading in that territory generally, so you kind of stayed away from it. Yeah, I mean, I've thought I know some people I could talk to. I have, I have one Native American friend here. Mm-hmm. He goes, any story you tell is okay. <laughs> you can tell any stories, but he is speaking for himself. And, right, right. And he's Taino, and 
You know, that's kind of his political attitude. So I just sort of moved away. I think the last time I did, I played with that was when I wanted to record a Native American story that was amazing. Yeah. And we can't. We couldn't. I, I actually called somebody from that tribe or that group of that nation, and she said, well, how would you feel if it was your culture? And that was it. So anyway, and I decided I wanted to, to be able to play more. Mm-hmm. And I guess to some extent, I, for some reason, I've started seeing plays again. I haven't seen plays in years. I haven't even wanted to. So I guess there's a part of me just wants to go back to that, at least maybe not doing it, but the thought process that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And in storytelling, you can do that. I mean, I didn't realize that, you know, for a long time, I didn't know what stories I had to tell. Like many people, I was convinced I had none or that they were too big and awful. I can tell some light family stories, but, you know, my family has a tendency to dwell on the bad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that's that's, (laughs) unusual. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, uh, a lot of families are like that. (laughs) I have a friend who has some awful story, upbringing, severe white poverty, rednecky kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And she can make that stuff so funny. I mean, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. That's where she goes over and over again. So, yeah, I can't do it. I, I just want to burst into tears. My, okay, my mother so did that. that then. <laughs> no. But anyway, I mean, I, but right. I've been able to find a way around it. I've been looking for small stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I just, it's such a pleasure. And then I, this, the beginning of the pandemic, I, I took a bunch of, of um, storytelling classes just to watch mm-hmm. and see, you know, and I wanted to see what other people did. It is at least a couple of years or so before pandemic that I first encountered you telling stories when Michelle Carlo invited you to do our, our shows at Word Up Bookshop. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, you came across to me as, as, as somebody who had been doing this for, for quite a while. You seemed very comfortable with it. So when did you first take that step? I have no idea. I was thinking, <laughs> I've thought about it. I can't remember. It's Michelle invited me to see something at Poisson Rouge. And there were some really good performers there. Who are I like comics too. Mm-hmm. Some of them were comics, right. and I was like infatuated with it. But I could not for the. And then there were people would ask me to tell a story, and I had no idea. I hadn't realized you could bullshit through it. Yeah. You know, um, we're, we're going to say that's part of the craft. <laughs> but you know, it is part of the craft. That's it's, true. It's improv. Absolutely. I had forgotten that about folk tales because I'd really gotten into doing it prop right and doing mm-hmm. it properly and not inserting myself into it. I was like, going, oh my God, I can't do any of these. And that's why I'm bored. Now, I've lately started putting myself back in, which is good because I've got a bunch of shows, kids' mm-hmm. shows coming up, which pay good money, which is oh, why I well. do it. Yeah. Um, and besides, the stories are gorgeous. But, you know, improv is part of it. You don't memorize a story. Yeah. There are people who do, mm-hmm. but it's it means you can't respond to the audience. Do you remember how you felt when you first told a personal story? I think it was on Poisson Rouge, and it was for this guy that kind of used to, whenever I talked, he'd pull out a notebook to jot notes down, which I felt like, I've just started doing this, this kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it was okay. I didn't like the story 
looking back on it, it was overthought. Mm-hmm. But it was, I didn't know what, I had no idea what to do. It was about some friends who came to stay with us, me and Tom, mm-hmm. and we're always putting people up. We're all, we're like a, <laughs> we're like a halfway house for storytellers and friends and family. And I think I went out, I forgot to leave keys for them. And when I got back, I was humiliated. I mean, they were okay. They took care of themselves. Oh, and my phone. I had my phone. I had dropped it in the toilet so it wasn't working or something, or it had gone through the wash. So it was like I felt so stupid. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know any of that until I got to my job. And so I didn't know what to do when I finally got there. They were there waiting and they were not mad. I was just so embarrassed. Yeah. So when they left, I gave them a set of keys and I said, keep them for your next time. Mm. And that began a whole process of giving out keys. So I made up a whole introduction that was not true. Uh And I I mean, I didn't realize the story itself could stand on its own. I made up a whole thing about, well, my mother used to do this and we used to do that. I was like, uh I mean, I felt like it needed something background. It did. It act. I now look in telling you it. I know it didn't need it. It was really a story of mistake that we now have people all over the world with our keys. <laughs> so you know, because why not? It's like. Oh, so when you disappear, we got to interview a lot of suspects. Yeah, you're going to be a lot of suspects. I'll make a list for you. Oh, okay. That'll be your next true what do crime I do podcast. Uh, so you did you eventually get comfortable with, with sharing your personal stories? I mean, well, the thing is, obviously I, continued doing it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I love being on stage and I love talking to people on stage through a microphone. So I was, I was comfortable even if my story wasn't working. I mean, and I think for some people, they don't, it, it takes them a long time to feel comfortable. Um, who was it? Some wonderful storyteller. We were doing a moth slam, and uh-huh. he won. It's this Matt Dix, who always wins, because his stories are frighteningly well put together and really funny and good. And he just said to me, I'd done this story, and I was kind of proud of it, and I just thanked him for his story. And he looked at me, he goes, he just always looks so comfortable up there. I thought that was a great compliment coming from him mm, and surprising because mm. he actually always looks comfortable up there. Only speaking for myself, but that, that's something that I've always enjoyed about your work is you, to me, you always come across as just somebody who's part of the crew hanging out in the room, getting up and now you, you're just talking to us. just, you happen to have the microphone in hand. You're mm-hmm. telling an anecdote as you would if we were a bunch of people sitting in a restaurant or a pub or something yeah. and just the conversation went your way. And that, that's, I think, part of the appeal of your work for a lot of us, you know. Oh, that's so nice. It's genuine. is why we're always happy to see that. Ah, Robin's going to spin one of her stories, you know. She's going to spin so a I, lot of junk. She's going to make it up from the beginning. No, I'm just joking. Well, I don't believe anything you say. So if that makes any difference. No. So how do you get from from telling folk tales to starting to share personal stories to starting to go out there and doing it more. And I, I want to let folks know if they don't know about this amazing thing that you've done for a few years now, the Beatty House Storytelling Shows. How, how did we go from folk tales to here? Well, actually, I started that as I was transitioning out of that as a focus. 
And I decided the only way I was going to learn about personal storytelling was in my very controlling way, um, (laughs) have a house concert and give people, I mean, when I tell folk tales, I mean, I could tell for an hour and a half to an audience. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I get hired for things like that. And Uh so I know how to build a set. And a lot of people, when I started, didn't seem to have longer stories or longer sets. And so um, I wanted to give it to people. It was mm. like what I could give people. I mean, I thought a lot of it is, what can I bring to this group? And the other thing is, how can I learn what they're doing? And the best way to learn it is by listening. And so if I have them there, and then I could pay them, because when I started, Michelle said she paid from early on, and, and I believe her, but I know almost nobody else did. Mm-hmm. And I just thought... If I can bring something from that other world, it's that we have to be paid. I'll do things where I don't get paid, and I'll do it just because I'm also making money and as a professional storyteller mm-hmm. and professional storytelling teacher. So sometimes it goes between what am I making more money at. It doesn't really matter right now. That's why I started doing the Beatty House. And then I just kept saying, well, I want to go and bake for it because I did something called Milk and Cookies when I was in Ireland. And I told some folk tales there. They had milk and cookies. It was great. And I would use it except that, you know, it's theirs. I don't mm. want to be Milk and Cookies right. Brooklyn. And I, my, bro- my brother, when I lives in Berlin, and we went to a house concert for musicians and we dropped some money, and I thought, this is what we should do. It's a way to popularize the art form. It's a, it's a way for people to see each other, and it's a way to build community. I don't know how well I've done on the building community, because I live out in Brooklyn, and it's sometimes people just don't want to come out here. But, you know, I mean, I was trying to build a community around here, and there's some more new people who've moved around here, and I want to get non-storytellers in. Mm-hmm. You know, because I don't I want us to just. Well, having been to a couple of the Beatty House things, I can I can say mm-hmm. one part of the appeal was the the it was so welcoming, and you know I, I I've seen people come here and like you know and come back yeah and and share here where they may not have shared elsewhere, you know, and that that's part of what you've established. But so I. At what point along the way, I, I know you're, you're uh, a, a project uh, of which you were passionate. It happened along the way. Uh, you referenced it before, Nancy Jawinski. Tell me mm. about that. Well, when I first started working with this teacher, this my mentor, Elizabeth mm. Ellis, look her up, everybody, uh, ElizabethEllis.com. She is an amazing woman who just kind of opens doors for people all the time. And this Mm. was a lot. She, I was going to go and talk about folk tales, but she's like one of these people who are always on stages of these national festivals, you know, where there are thousands of people and blah, blah. And some friend talked me into it. And I went to a workshop and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I brought some notes and that's what turned into Nancy Drewinsky. It's a weird show. I mean, for me, it's weird. It's hard. It's a show about how my dad was targeted during the MacArthur era 
along with 40 other Jewish men who all worked for the government. So it was when McCarthy was starting to focus on on the army and um, when he was starting to go after people who worked for the army. And it it sort of jibed with, there was an anti-Semitic guy, major, who wanted to get rid of some of the Jews that were there mm. and who were especially, who were, who had special permissions and clearances and stuff. And uh, nobody talks. It's sort of this thing that people hint at, but no one talked about. Mm. And it was always a thing that hung over the family and the house. And you, you got a feeling that if you walked the wrong way, you might fall into a deep, deep pit and be sucked down into the dirt. That's what the story is about. I, I wanted to start opening it up. Mm-hmm. It's been a really hard show to do. It's not at all where I want it. Some people like it. Some people don't. Some people tell me it's not a storytelling show. It's not about a person. And I think that's okay. So anyway, I've taken it. I've toured it. Some people love it. People of different races and creeds have said, oh, now I understand why Jewish people's experiences are so much like this black people's experiences or like other native peoples. And, you know, where they, they're starting to make the connection where before there hadn't been one. But, you know, my biggest thing in the story is you never know when your freedom's going to get taken away. Mm. And you're never going to know what it's going to be taken away for. I mean, we're watching it happen I was going to say, you know, case in point. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's funny. I mean, I don't know. You know, I haven't written a play. When I wrote plays, I wrote a lot of plays, but I based it, they were for young people, and I based it on stories we developed together. You know, I come from this developmental, you know, theater projects, you know, early on in Chicago. And I was used to building shows with other people where we all do this. And so I did that with the kids. And, okay, I think, well, anyway, it was, I was always told I should write it up, but I've never wanted to, I didn't think I was a good enough writer. That's what was really happening. I'm sorry I didn't because it was really good work. And I have some of the plays still, Mm -hmm. not many. Um, but I do have some, uh, but I'm not used to, I don't really know quite how this story builds. And, you know, one of the things is there's been a couple of things, and again, it's through my teaching. So I teach senior adults now. I mean, like I say, the first door that was opened was, hey, Robin, you need some, you need to work. How about working for Arts Connection, which is this fabulous arts agency, blah, 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 that works in the schools and sends artists in and uh, as a teaching artist. So I was a teaching artist for years. And I was just, I don't know, I was doing the same thing. It was like doing the same thing over and over again. And I was getting a little sloppy because I could do it in my sleep. And I know how to get kids involved and how to get teachers involved and know how to do it. And and the work was fun and great, but it wasn't challenging me I was anymore. Say after a while, you know, it it not even didn't even have to be a conscious thing. It's like, oh, I can do this in my sleep. You just kind of. And then it, the door started opening to working with seniors, and I got again very lucky working with Eldershare the Arts, which is an organization that has 
think pretty much gone to seed now, but it was one of the very first programs where people who were artists decided to bring what they did to senior citizens and and work in senior centers and with senior councils. Now it's like an incredibly well-funded thing all across the country. There's a lot of money. That's probably because it's baby boomers. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's pe- money is going into teaching the arts in, to senior citizens. And so I've been doing that for a long time. Well, maybe 11 years? That doesn't seem so long in comparison <laughs> now, but... 10 years, in that, I get to teach actually storytelling. I get to teach some of the stuff I learned with uh, Kevin Allison and some other people. I, I learned structure. And I am very grateful for that. So what I was saying, you know, I started out teaching little kids and it's like- I'm, Yeah, I was thinking there was an interesting keep, little arc there. I grow up and what I need to know is this. I also took a class in writing from a woman who was also a storyteller, um, Diana Speckler, Speckler, I think. She used, you know, she was a, she, a writer, an essayist, but told stories and- she taught a class that really heightened a lot of my sense of story. And that's my big interest now is I want to take that though to, I don't know what to do with Nancy. I don't, and I don't know who can help me right now. Look at the story in the way I think it needs to be looked at. What do you think it's missing? I don't have a sense of the arc. It's not a regular arc. It is not a story of just one person. Well, and, anyway, it sounds to me like, and from what I know about it, it sounds like it, it It starts with the extremely personal and tries to extend it out to be more encompassing. Would that be accurate? That's very accurate. And one of the reasons I had to become more activated, act, uh, whatever that word is you <laughs> used, was that younger people didn't know anything about McCarthyism. And they didn't know anything about that kind of anti-Semitism. And they didn't know about the journey of Jews to this country. They maybe knew sort of a romanticized version of it. They just didn't know about the history. You know, and I, I think a lot of kids don't realize not, not only don't have an awareness of what's happening now, they don't realize that this has happened before many times. Well, that's exactly it. And, I, I you know, there's, it's interesting. I, I know I really haven't gotten where I want to be. There was a show I saw. It was John Leguizamo. It's... What was it? It was like a history of... of oh, I, I, I'm blanking on the title. I know exactly what I you mean. I want to say a man's, a a man's view of Latino history or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, a Latino history. And it was so interesting because he went in and out between personal stories and then he'd pull down screens that would give all the points. Yeah, but it was like and, spurred by by his son in school, right? Right, not, not, not knowing. knowing. Stories. Yeah. And, you know, that is kind of, when after I saw that, I thought, that's the kind of thing I want, where I don't say everything, where some of it is just for people to read or a video of people acting it out, you know, or something that's behind me, because it's a way to separate out the personal from the, from the history. And I, what I realized is I go back to my, I thought I was going to be a triple threat. Singer, dancer, and actress. 
Probably two of those were a bit out of reach for me. <laughs> I can sing okay. I can't dance worth anything anymore. I just forget patterns. So it's not a good thing because um, dance is pattern heavy. I, you know, I, I still want my, I don't know, I want to be counted in the people who make a difference. You know, when the Iraq War started, I worked with a friend and we did Aesop's Fables, stories from our time, and we took Aesop's Fables, we changed them to reflect today. So we'd, we'd upgrade them. And my friend's a cartoonist, so we do a combination of cartoon, and it was, it was good. It was good. I couldn't figure out how to monetize it. And he really wanted to do that quick. It's always a trick, right? Yeah. You know, for me, I just had to do it. And I wish I had let him monetize it with me. But, you know, it's okay because I moved on. But it's made me realize when the Iraq War started, it's like, don't get mad, get creative. You know, I realized that I didn't become a triple threat. And it would be good, too, because I could do a different kind of political theater, but I moved out of theater and I want to do something else. And how do I do it? And what is it I do? And why not start with my own personal life? Because this was something I was ashamed of. I was ashamed when I realized how much of it pointed to anti, in this story, pointed to Mm anti-Semitism. I I had a friend say to me, it's not about anti-Semitism. It's not. I mean, I practically broke down in tears during two shows. I mean, these were like not big deal shows where people were paying money. It was like in conferences and stuff. But it was like this, you know, uh, realization that it was about more than, it was about a part of me that I had kind of erased. And that's just another part of trying to fit in with everybody not talking a lot about being Jewish. Um, and then I realized my whole life was had been predicated on reactions to my father's and our community's religious identity. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of an interesting thing. My siblings wouldn't agree. None of them identify as Jewish, really, except in as far away as they can be. Uh-huh. Um, I know at the time of pandemic, you were really digging in deep with this show and, you know, exploring where you wanted to go with that. And we're... Then I dropped it. I don't want to... Well, I don't want to say that we're exiting pandemic and people are like, oh, it's over. No, it's not over. But as we're returning to coming back out, what do you see yourself doing? Are you going to get back into putting Nancy Jawinski out there or Beatty House storytelling shows? What what are you seeing for yourself right now? I want to do Beatty House because the other reason I started it is friends of mine from out of town who are used to making money in storytelling mm-hmm. but don't have a lot of money in general want to visit and want to show. <laughs> so, I hear you. They know, don't have money, but they have your keys. They have my keys. <laughs> so they can get in and they can stay and we'll feed them. But, you know, there's a there's a whole thing. You go, I go to towns and people put me in shows. Mm-hmm. And... It's a kind of thing. House concerts for other people have been ways they've made money. And so I would like to keep the flow of, of people coming in. And, and there are a lot of New York storytellers I haven't heard that 
um, I kept promising, I'll have you next, I'll have you next. And I've got about 20 people I've said that to, <laughs> probably. And, you know, I don't see why not. Well, do you have any, any target on, on uh, a return to the Beatty House? No. Um, soon. We did a house renovation, which was really expensive and very disconcerting. So I'm putting all my... I'm putting things like kind of, you know, I've been organizing my office for two weeks mm. kind of thing because uh, that's just how it left me feeling. I am a little spacey. <laughs> and so I want to get that. I just want to feel some feet on the ground. Sure. Um, and I think when the weather gets nice, we, we do it outside. Um, I've had somebody approach me about producing that, which I don't know what that means, but I like that thought. Producing Beatty House. Oh, okay, okay. And you know, I just took it for granted that's what you were doing. Well, that's what I'm doing, but I don't really, I don't have a plan. I, I pick people, I and I publicize. And oh yeah, I get the emails and I see the notices and yeah. I, I get very excited about it when I see that. I hope it'll be happening again sooner than later. Part of the reason we turned did did the kind of breakthroughs we broke through a couple of walls. Mm-hmm. So we have an open kitchen and dining room and living room. There's a little bit of a separation, but not much. And that's partly because of the baby house. And even my husband, who started out being very negative about this, like it's taking my time and I have to clean and I have to. <laughs> He's such a funny guy. Now he's like, when are we doing it next? And I'll get this oh, and I'll nice. make that. See, well, he loves Bob, it. You always get people to come around. I do. <laughs> Well, let me, let me ask you this. Where can people find out what's going on, all things Robin? Well, the problem is right now that I'm not posting anything, mm-hmm. and my website is down. Ooh, so it's okay. really hard. So the way to get a hold of me is either through you or just email me. <laughs> R-O-B-B-A-D-Y, that's Rob Beatty, one word, at Gmail. Ask me to put on the list, and I have a list that every now and then I send out. I realize I tried to write a, a new um, website, but I don't even know what I'm doing, what I want to do. So it's been really hard to write about me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's okay. But people can reach out to you via the email and get an emailing list and you keep uh, You'll be on my emailing list if you want to know about nancydrewinski.com, which I will be mounting up again in one form or another, you can go to Nancy Drewinsky with a Y dot com and that lays the whole show out. Awesome. And all my collaborators and that's my best website right, right. now. <laughs> well, you know, a little known story, what had been the original no name uh website a number of years ago fell into disuse for a while. It got co-opted and the last time I saw if you went to no name nyc.com you got a Chinese porn site. Oh, shit. Uh, so thankfully Congratulations. that Congratulations. You're yeah, moving you know I somebody found a way to monetize no name. I just have nothing to do with it. Uh, Robin, I, I I've had a blast talking with you and eating your cookies and petting your cat and I Aww. you know I'm not sure that I'm actually gonna leave but we'll <laughs> We'll struggle with that off mic. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, I loved, I've always loved talking to you, but you know that. Well, it's mutual. You know, you're my buddy. And I can't wait, I can't wait till we get back to uh, seeing your work either on stage or in living room. 
or through Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, keep doing your good work. Thanks. Love you. Love you too. That was our conversation with Robin Beatty. She's just such a wonderful storyteller and a lovely person. We were eating fresh, homemade, still warm from the oven oatmeal raisin cookies while we were chatting with her. And if you want to get a spot on the podcast, by the way, baking us fresh homemade cookies is a way to guarantee a spot. There's no evidence that she was bribing us to be on the show, but if she's on again, it may be a bribe. So that's it for this edition. I I do want to thank my producer, the amazing Gary Hardcastle. Also, thanks to additional audio from Miles Blue Spruce. And our theme music is written and performed by the one and only King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. Oh, man. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to head out now, and we're going to leave you with a new song from our dear friend James Tristan Redding. He's got a great new album out. You want to check it out. And the song we're leaving you with is called Mercy Mile. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time, my name is Eric Vedder. I love you all. take it back I can't change the facts I can't make the past be something else I can't get too close I can't let you go I can't dream of loving someone else One more touch, one more embrace Please don't leave me now There must be some saving grace To rise above the so cold I can't see the road I can't draw the blinds or shut the door I can't seem to say I can't walk away I can't live without you anymore One more touch, one more embrace Please don't leave me now There must be some saving grace To rise above the
living grace. 